0: From New York City, welcome to the OpenFin MVP Podcast. I'm your host, Mazi
1: Dar. If you're working on diversifying your cap table and you can't name eight, 10 majority black-owned venture funds, work on it because there are dozens out there that have raised capital and are deploying capital and you should be focused on how you get to them before you enter a fundraise. And it's the same with board members and figure out what you're looking for and what else can be brought to the table. And in terms of women, I mean, there, there are so many women-led venture funds and women partners at venture funds and women you know, associates and principals. So it shouldn't be challenging. You just have to start doing it with intentionality. That's Ed Zimmerman. He's a lawyer, investor,
0: professor, wine enthusiast, and advocate on social issues, including race, gender, the LGBTQ community, reproductive rights, and gun control. Ed joins me to talk about his career at Lowenstein-Sandler, where he created the Venture Crush platform for startups and the investors who back them. We talk about some common legal mistakes that founders make and the current fundraising environment. We also talk about Ed's social advocacy, and he offers advice on what we can all do to improve diversity in technology and the venture space.
1: Hi, Ed. How are you? I'm terrific, Mazi. Thanks for having me. How are you?
0: I'm good, thanks. I'm super excited to have you. I've been wanting to have you on for quite some time now, and it feels like a timely moment to be having this discussion. Normally, when we start, I like to get folks to talk a little bit about their background, but there's a burning question I've been meaning to ask you that I'd love to hear the answer to. And that question is, do you sleep?
1: And if so, when? I do sleep starting January 20th, 2021. Does that help answer your question a little?
0: That that does. And it actually dovetails nicely with a LinkedIn post I put up last week that, that actually is maybe the most popular post I've ever put up where I said that I, I used to not sleep because of anxiety and now I can't sleep because I'm excited about what's next. That seems to have struck a chord with, with a number of people who feel similarly. Is that how you're feeling?
1: I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, but I am relieved about what's next as much as I am excited about what's, what's next. There's a tremendous amount to be done to restore the, the damage of what I think the last um, four years have resulted in for our country.
0: Yeah, we're on the same page on that one. We're going to talk about politics a little bit later, but I do want to start with a discussion about law and your journey, actually, from law to uh, investment and entrepreneurship. Can you tell us when the moment was when you sort of started to transition from, you know, just being a lawyer to thinking of yourself more as an entrepreneur or investor?
1: I'll let you know when it happens. I mean, I, I, you know, you, you said that the the transition from, and I think it's maybe the evolution to include within, right? Yeah, because that's a better, better way to say it for sure. You're still a lawyer. Well, at, and also at a time when we bring our whole selves to work, and when there's a lot of discussion of that, one of the reasons that I've stayed at Lowenstein Sandler since I was a summer associate in. 1991 is that in 1994 I asked them if I could bring in pro bono a dance company run by a fairly controversial HIV positive choreographer named uh, and, and dancer and artist named Bill T. Jones. And they said, absolutely. And for the last 26 years, we have provided well over a million dollars of pro bono legal services to Bill T. And when uh, about a year and a half later, I asked if I could start representing a transvestite ballet company called La Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo, they said, sure. And, you know, I'm a tech lawyer. I w- I've i always been a deal lawyer. I'm not a ballet lawyer and I can't actually dance. I think the, the point is that I knew early on that I had found a platform that would allow me to stretch and to also do things that were important to me and where I had mentors and, in fact, sponsors who would encourage me to do things that you know, made me kind of be a, a whole person at at the office.
0: I really like the idea and the framing of it as a platform. You know, a good platform is one where the things that are that you're doing are symbiotic. You know, with kind of the the core job. So you're talking about you know, pro bono work that you've done that is in line with things that you care about and things that you believe in. And then you also started getting into supporting tech companies in in other ways beyond just offering legal advice. Can you talk a little bit about that and first growth, now Venture Crush FG and the evolution of that, like how that came to be, and then maybe tell people what that program is all about today?
1: Sure. Appreciate the opportunity to do so and also uh, appreciate it. and I'm proud of you as an alum of, of that program. And, Very and proud your, of this. Your, your consistent support of it over the years. So we, we held the first, I guess we called it venture terms or venture trends, but it's now venture crush, in March of 2000. And I remember distinctly that it was March of 2000 because people took out their BlackBerries and were looking at it. We had about 15 people around a conference room table and NASDAQ was literally melting in March of 2000 that day, as we sat in a room discussing venture deals, not realizing that we were about to see kind of a, a real pause in venture activity for several years as we staged the first one. And by the time we got to 2008, and 2008 in New York was a you know challenging time. It was challenging elsewhere as well, but obviously with Lehman and Bear Stearns collapsing, there were more people coming into venture almost by default or into startups, almost by default, but New York was not a robust market for it at the time. And the angels and the VCs and the founders didn't really know each other and there weren't a lot of great places and ways for them to connect. And so we had been doing these events and some of them were pitch events and some of them weren't, but we wanted to create an opportunity to get people in a room together and build relationships organically without a demo day, without taking equity, without charging or requiring them to work with anyone. And that was really the goal of the program. It was, can we get some founders in the room who this company may be great, maybe it's the next one for them that's great, but these are people who are going to, over time, be real leaders and be important in the marketplace, and they're good people and they should know each other, and let's start helping them build relationships with one another, and because we're at the center of it, even though no strings are attached ultimately it will benefit us and others so that was the that was the basic concept
0: i remember when i started to understand what was going on with what was called first growth at the time venture crush i was kind of marveling at how simple it was in some ways but also how how elegant <laughs> the whole thing was where you're helping people meet one another helping companies learn how to do entrepreneurship, but also connecting them with the folks who can help them and raise capital. As you said, it's a no-strings-attached approach to things, and I think it's it's just incredibly effective. I learned a lot from the mentors who were part of that program, but also we raised quite a bit of money from folks that I, that I just met
1: through the program. Just to wrap one thing on Venture Crush, FG, because Because so much has changed in 2020, we're launching right now the first virtualized version, which actually is going to be pods. And so instead of one group in one room meeting over an eight-month period six times a year, we're going to have about a dozen different pods led by VCs from Berlin and Prague and Nigeria and California and London. And we had a call with pod leads today and we've now admitted dozens. We haven't announced it publicly yet into the company and we have our kickoff on December 11th. So I'm actually really excited about what virtualized Venture Crush FG pods is enabling us to do because we can spread that same connectivity and still create the sort of small cohesive group where it is about being welcoming and inclusive.
0: First of all, that's amazing. I had no idea that you guys are doing that. Are applications open right now?
1: We are still taking the last few applications in, and so people should definitely get, get them in. And people can certainly contact me by email at com. They can also go to the venturecrush.com website, and we have an application up. And of course... As you might imagine, Mozzie, since you know that diversity, equity, and inclusion have always been important to us at Venture Crush, the application has also been vetted in order to ensure that it is a welcoming and inclusive application. So we've made sure that road bumps for folks with less traditional backgrounds, road bumps for folks who are not warmly introduced, all of those things have been deleted pretty comprehensively, we think.
0: That's terrific. That's terrific. And can you mention some of the names of folks who are involved with the program, like VCs and maybe entrepreneurs, so people get a sense for who they might interact with?
1: Yeah. Venture funds like Insight Ventures in New York or Aligned in San Francisco or Ada Ventures in London, Ingressive in Nigeria, La Familia in Berlin. Those are uh, G- Graycroft in New York and LA. Those are some examples of funds that are involved.
0: That's really great. So people should should apply. And I, th- I think it's it's also very much in keeping with with how you approach what you do, that you're evolving that program to make it work even better virtually. I'm really excited to see what that looks like in this next vintage. Let's talk about the current fundraising environment. Obviously, it's been it's been a tough year. Certain businesses that have been hit hard negatively and, and others like Zoom that have been thriving in this environment. What are you seeing and what is the advice that you're giving to entrepreneurs about how to think about a fundraising process right now?
1: There is a surprising amount of buoyant activity in the venture markets and we're seeing that up and down the stages of fundraising so the question is really how you get in front of the right folks and what you do once you're with them that's number one and then number two is the businesses that are positively impacted by covid seem to be looking at the question of how persistent will that behavior be when the pandemic has ended, right? Like, will people still shop from home as much? Will real estate be flagging even more than it now is? And as to the companies that have been negatively impacted by COVID, how negative and persistent is that hit? And Are those companies already at scale so that there's an opportunity to potentially value invest in those companies before they bounce back? Or are those companies not yet at scale? In which case, I think a lot of them, you know, really get sort of permanently hurt. And understanding where you fall in that grid is pretty important.
0: So companies that you're you're seeing navigate that well you're saying there there's a lot of capital out there that people are looking to put to work but but obviously you got to take into account the current conditions and also you know where we might be hopefully in the back half of next year when things change quite significantly potentially.
1: Yeah, and unlike the early 2000s where you had this big cash overhang where lots of people had money that they wanted to put to work but that money had you know was not being put to work. This money is being put to work. And there's a company that we've been representing for years. We did their A round, gosh, 10 years ago. We just launched a private tender offer for them last night. When that closes before the end of the year or by the end of the year, we will have moved a billion dollars of capital for that company in this calendar year, right? That's two fundraises and a private tender to give some liquidity to employees and some others. That, that's a lot, you know, there's a lot of activity and you look at a company like Zoom, which in the space of a year has gone, and Zoom is obviously an awkward example because it's so COVID benefited. Chime would be another example of that going to a fourteen and a half billion dollar valuation—that's a company that's less than five years. You know, their first venture round was less than five years ago.
0: Yeah, it's really amazing. It's, it's like for certain businesses, COVID has just accelerated. You know, what might have otherwise been a natural progression by by several years and compressed it down to a few weeks or months, just by forcing everybody to start behaving differently much much more quickly than
1: we would have otherwise, and. Whether that behavior spreads, whether it lasts, I think those are the important bets that people are are placing. Right.
0: Absolutely. I can say, for one, at OpenFin, one of the, one of the big changes for us is that we didn't used to be an all-remote company, and I think we were concerned about what that would look like and if it would work well. Obviously, COVID has forced us, like everybody else, to become an all-remote company, and it turns out it works great. And so I think for us certainly we're going to continue doing a lot of this. It w- it won't be 100% remote but I think we'll be fairly remote even post COVID because you know we've hired people on the west coast and in other parts of the country and the world actually. So that you know that's a behavior for us that's definitely going to last.
1: There's an interesting question there. You've always been great Mazi about building team and and building team at OpenFin and building community with the people around you. What are a couple of the things that you feel have worked for you and for OpenFin in building team during remote times?
0: One of the things that we started doing that I really like during this period is that we used to have a monthly all hands meeting that would last usually about an hour, maybe a little bit more. And every month we try to cram in a lot of stuff into that hour to just keep everybody updated on all the things that were going on in the company. As soon as we all started working from home, we decided, well, we just need a, we need a way for people to be engaged with their colleagues every day. So there's like a touch point and we're not losing touch by virtue of the fact that we're not sort of in person anymore. And so we started doing a 15 minute all hands, we call it a small hands meeting now. So it's 15 minutes every day. It's 845 New York time. And every day we have a different person present on a topic that would be relevant to the whole company. Sometimes they're very technical. Sometimes it's, you know, somebody uh, from the sales side or product. And I've found that to be really, really effective because we're not cramming in as much information. And it is a very simple way for everybody to be engaged, even when they're working on different teams or working in different regions. Um, So that's something I definitely want to continue going forward, even when we're back to being in person.
1: That's a great thing to do. And I also note that you we're specific about the time, we've certainly shifted time to optimize across the geographies where we believe our people and those close to us are and or will, will be so that we can work in um, you know, the, the different time zones. And for, for instance, for our Venture Crush events, we've generally hung them around lunchtime in New York because that's good for... West Africa time, it's good for European time. It's it's good for California time. And that is different than when we would normally be doing physically present events. Right. Right. And you've
0: reminded me that we're we're going to need to change that time because we we now have a number of people who work on the West Coast and a 5:45 a.m. wake-up call is not is not ideal. So we'll, we'll probably be shifting more to the the New York
1: lunchtime as well. I did not mean to time zone shame you and your thoughtless. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. But your West Coast team has been texting me, and no. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so Ed, on the on the legal side of things, what are some of the the mistakes that you've seen founders make, whether on on the investment side of things or the day to day operations? And before you answer the question, I do want to thank you for the advice that you gave me on dealing with PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. Now, when I get advice from folks, when that advice you know, changes my mind about something, it's when, I, it's when I value it the most, when I appreciate it the most. And you definitely changed how I was thinking about PPP earlier this year, and I'm really thankful that you did that. But maybe talk a little bit about that, and if you have one or two other examples of things that
1: you think founders should maybe be aware of. Sure, thank you and that's very kind of you to say about the PPP loans. With PPP, we we jumped on it early because we are in the fortunate position of having several colleagues at our at, at Lowenstein Sandler who were the attorney general of a state or were prosecutors at the US Attorney's office or were a bureau chief at the AG's office. And the enforcement piece is not far behind, and so we Very rapidly held a session for about 600 people, mostly on our venture crush list, to have a former attorney general of of the state of New Jersey, a former bureau chief and assistant DA in the Bronx, and a former uh, Southern District of New York prosecutor at the Department of Justice talk with us, with one of our SBA certified lending lawyers, about what enforcement looked like post-Hurricane Sandy, what it looked like post 9-11, when there were relief funds distributed. And seeing that discussion unfold in early April, which is when we held it and then we wrote about it, was really instructive because, for instance, our colleague Kathleen McGee, who was the bureau chief at the New York Attorney General's Office for the Bureau of Internet and Technology, wrote the first article, we think, in The Nation, and the Wall Street Journal quoted it, On the interplay between the Freedom of Information Act and PPP loans saying, we're pretty sure that lots of info about you will be disclosed and make sure that you feel good about the loan that you've just taken because there's a difference between the way the people who are political and who have been elected or appointed feel about getting the money out the door when they're under pressure to do so and the way that enforcement officials and regulators will look at that and how the funds were ob- obtained and used and reported a year later, months later, several years later. So I think that was that was important and there were a lot of misperceptions about how those rules worked, even the eligibility rules themselves. On a second and separate topic, if we wanted to pick one area to focus on, it's how safes work. And safes are a fundraising document that YC created years ago, Y Combinator, but they're also a marketing document for YC. They are very, very easy to use on the way in the door, and they are much more problematic when they convert into a financing round. And we're seeing people layer on safe after safe after safe. Sometimes they don't have what's called a common action clause or a clause that says, if enough folks who hold safes that look like this or are pretty close to this say, okay, then you can amend or waive. And that amendment or waiver applies to everyone. If you don't have that clause, then every single safe holder, whether they put in 7,000 or 12,000, has a veto right. And by the way, because these safes do get negotiated, as venture investors have realized that if they invest in seed stage and they're coming in through a safe round, that's really their only shot at getting terms that they want. So... Some of these safes get customized. At a certain point, you start asking, well, is this one of those safes that's part of the collective action clause, or might this be different? And then we see people, because there are four basic flavors of safes on the Y Combinator website, we see people use a mix, even in the same financing round. They each convert differently into preferred stock. And then, of course, you know, company feels that it's made progress. Three months later, it opens up a new batch of safes. And so it's not atypical for us to convert safes into five, six, four different sub-series of preferred stock at the time we do a general financing because of the way that math works. And founders don't really, in our experience, don't really have a good sense of how the conversion works and who owns how much of the company. Now that's consistent with the goals of a safe because the whole point of it was, ah, let's not value the company today. Let's not do the hard work of negotiating and making you feel bad that your company's not worth as much as you think (laughs) it is and making me feel bad because I'm not going to get the deal because I've now offended you by telling you, I don't think your company's worth as much as you want it to be. So the kicking the can down the road has some consequences and triggers some pretty interesting iterative math.
0: So founders kind of go into it thinking this is a simple solution and actually they, they end up paying for it, sometimes economically, but also in like, you know, more complexity in future rounds as a result. That was advice I'm glad I got from you before, before we de- went down that path, because that's exactly what I was thinking was, hey, let me go to do one of these safes. And I'm, uh, I'm pleased that I had the discussion with you way back when, where we, we solved for that proactively. The New Jersey Attorney General you were referring to is, is
1: Ann Milgram, correct? Well, there's Ann Milgram, and uh, she and Kathleen McGee and I wrote an op-ed in the National Law Journal on what we thought should have been a good framework for amnesty, for PPP loans, because the government whipsawed us. And she was the 57th Attorney General of New Jersey and also does a podcast with Preet Bharara and has done other amazing stuff and teaches at NYU Law. And there's also Chris Perino, who was the 60th Attorney General of New Jersey and is also at our firm. And Chris is the chair of our litigation department.
0: I'm a huge fan of N. Milgram's. You introduced me to Preet Bharara's podcast. And that actually was one of the things that inspired me to start this podcast. Thank you for that. And people who hear the opening to Preet's podcast will also recognize some similarities into, in how we open.
1: Preet, if you're if you're listening, I'm happy to take that suit on a pro bono basis for whatever infringement Mozzie is guilty of, because <laughs> it sounds intentional. <laughs> I think maybe it's
0: more flattery, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, uh, I'll, I'll say you know it was it was inspiring to see somebody somebody like Preet Bharara. Uh, reinvent himself that way. And also to see him have, have fun doing that podcast and, and also how he's turned it into a platform from the beginning. It's not just the one podcast, it's, it's grown into supporting others, which is very similar to how I, I see you approach the things that you do, Ed. So it, it sounds like there's a bit of a theme there. Well, that's uh,
1: very kind of you. I too am a fan of, of Preet Bharara and of the fact that he used his Credibility and experience, and tremendous intellect and skill set, to shine a light on some really problematic stuff that was going on with our with our government. I know we're going to get to politics later, so we don't have to jump ahead. But um, I'm a fan.
0: Yeah, uh, me too. Actually, that, that's probably a great segue. I want to read you an email that is dated February twenty fifth, twenty sixteen. It's from you to me. The subject says do you want to have lunch with Kamala Harris? And then your email yes. says, <laughs> your email says, March 3rd in my office, this would be to discuss working on a fundraiser for her and to get to know her better. Really small group, uh, no donation required. Let me know. Thanks, Ed. So I showed up to your office and it turned out it was a really small group. It was me and you and Kamala sitting in your office eating sandwiches. Actually, it, I think I was the only one eating sandwiches, you guys weren't, <laughs> so that was also awkward, but that was a really wild way to to get to know Kamala Harris. It was also, I think, the first time that you really introduced me to interacting with some of these politicians and supporting what they're doing. Can you talk about how you got started with that and, and, and just talk about some of the work that you're doing now, you know, supporting a number of different candidates who believe in the same things you do?
1: Yeah, I'm concerned we're not talking enough about your sandwich, though. Is that okay? <laughs> Are we? So, look, Betsy, my, my wife and I have been together since we're 18 years old, and I like to think that our political views have evolved, but they haven't changed that much. And it's been a really nice, partnership in that respect as well as so many so many other respects as you know we were not in, involved in political fundraising until the hobby lobby case like we had gone to some fundraisers and had made some donations but we didn't host until the hobby lobby case which just was a a case that said my religious views can enable me as your employer to defund anything having to do with reproductive rights in the healthcare that I provide for you as my employee. And I just felt like it was sort of the final straw in a list of things and that we had to be more active. So Betsy and I have hosted dozens of fundraisers for numerous candidates. We've gotten smarter about how we think through which candidates we want to vet and and when. We make some basic rules and then we end up ignoring them. So for instance, I do remember telling Mondaire Jones that I didn't want to get involved in pre-primary stuff and yet hosted him pre-primary and then hosted him again later. I think we just feel really strongly that number one, You can have a voice, and because we're now in a privileged position, we have to use that privilege to advocate for things that matter to us, and reproductive rights is very high on that list, diversity, equity, and inclusion, including basic human rights for black and brown people for the LGBTQ plus community. Those things are, we, I don't understand why it's why it's 2020 and we're, we're fighting battles that, you know, we should have resolved years ago and, and can't seem to do it. Controlling our gun epidemic is another. Remarkably enough, whether science matters is another. So those are, you know, examples, climate change, which is subsumed under that science heading. Those are examples. And then, you know, once you say yes, you get asked to do more. And it's also been a terrific way to team up with friends like you. And I was thrilled when you agreed to host a fundraiser for Kamala. I was also excited that it was your first co-hosting of a political fundraiser. And I, yeah, know, was, kind of love doing that because it feels like you can be a force multiplier and, you know, you can help people do that. And there are really valuable groups like Emily's List that are going to change the gender balance of who's in office because why, why are we so wedded to the concept that only men seem to be able to govern? It's not true, it's not reflective of who we are as a as a country, it's not reflective of the demographics, it just doesn't make any sense. So it's kind of insane to us that we have to be fighting these battles, but they seem like really important battles, and hopefully we should take money out of politics. As you know, we, we have hosted on numerous occasions my former law professor, Elizabeth Warren, who was my favorite professor in law school, and at a certain point, she also said, "You know, I'm not going to do these high-dollar, large donor events. Not that we're that, you know, large donors, but she's right. I'm I, I'm not entitled to speak to Elizabeth Warren. She should be dealing with the, you know, whoever wants to be in front of her because that's how elected officials should work. That's how our system should work. So, ironically, I would love to be in a situation where we end those kinds of fundraisers, but we have, we have work to do to, to restore democracy a little bit before that.
0: Yeah, we, we clearly have a lot to do. You've been really astute in identifying people to back. What was it about Kamala Harris back
1: then that made you feel like she's somebody that you'd want to support? So I can't remember exactly why I ended up having my first sandwich with her in our office, but She's brilliant and has a great track record and is very charismatic. And she was already super accomplished. I mean, the being the Attorney General of California is a really big deal. And her answers came, the first time that we co-hosted her, her answers came in brilliant, eloquent essays. And I thought, wow, the substance this woman has is flooring. But I also thought that essays were great for a fundraiser in Midtown. They were not great for a podium with a larger audience. And watching how she evolved didn't change the issue she felt strongly about, didn't change her positions on the things that we care about. But it seemed like she was also going to have an opportunity to diversify the senate and was a backable winnable candidate so it became a no-brainer and then as we got to spend a little time with her you know on a couple of different occasions she just was consistently impressive and brilliant and warm and high integrity so it was she she was a really easy one A, a more interesting one perhaps is another team up with you which is in the 60 days prior to the election betsy and i hosted two fundraisers for Mark Kelly and Reverend Raphael Warnock in Arizona and Georgia. I don't know if you noticed, Mozzie, but those two states ended up being kind of important in this election. I did. And that was really driven. We've had a long relationship with Mark and Gabby, uh, Mark Kelly and Gabby Giffords on gun control. And I didn't want, especially in this cycle, to host fundraisers for straight white dudes to enter the US Senate, certainly not alone. And so the idea of doing, you know, group fundraising made sense. Warnock was so impressive. And like Stacey Abrams, he talked about registering voters in Georgia and he talked about the math. And Stacey Abrams had taken me through that math several years ago when she was running. And just the number of people who were going to come to the polls to vote for the first time, just so that they could vote for Abrams. It was a no-brainer that they were going to do the same just so that they could vote for Warnock. And he registered hundreds of thousands of voters in Georgia who had never voted. And a lot of those voters are black voters. And to me, you know, the I felt like the black vote was actually going to rescue the country from Donald Trump. So in both cases, it seemed like Arizona and Georgia, you had two candidates who were going to get people out, get them inspired. And it was actually not only going to help get amazing candidates into office, but it was actually going to help up the ticket. And so the Democrat running for president would also benefit. And that's why we did two of those in the 60 days pre-election.
0: Yeah, well, I've always been a fan of Mark Kelly and super excited that he's in the Senate. I hadn't come across Reverend Warnock prior to you introducing me to him. And I have to say, I was immediately impressed at his empathy, at his command of the issues and how eloquently he speaks about them. So I'm a huge fan and it's going to be an exciting few weeks. This, This is the election that does not want to end. It turns out, so uh, you know, we've got uh, straight through into uh, January five and 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 perhaps beyond before this is this is all over. This is probably a good segue to talking about just mixing work and politics. It's obviously a topic that people feel passionately about and can can definitely potentially get in the way of of working with others. I know that way back when. You invited some people to just not do business with you anymore if they had a, a problem with your views about equality and inclusion. Can you talk about that a little bit, and and also, you know, how you think about kind of mixing those two things that people usually tell you you're not
1: supposed to do? Yeah, you, you really aren't. I think that was 2012 where I wrote something inviting people to not do business if with me if my views uh, in support of marriage equality for the LGBTQ community offended them. It's not something that is hard to do when you're privileged. And what's the point of having privilege if you're not going to use it to do things that you believe in? So it's really that simple. And I know that it has turned people off, but I also don't want to be polite when people are endorsing racism or homophobia or xenophobia or religious discrimination. There's no point in condoning that. And there's no point in pretending that it's normal and okay, and that we should just focus on the deal at hand. So, you know, you make conscious decisions and some people are offended by it and some people maybe not be offended by it, but are offended that you're taking a political view at all because it's not your, it's not your role. But this is how I feel about things and you're welcome to opt out.
0: Yeah. I feel like in this moment people are recognizing that the time to, to just be polite is over, and that if you have a voice that you can use to affect positive change, that you're supposed to do it. I feel like people are, have become a little bit more comfortable with it, but there's still that, there's still that line <laughs> and that balance in how you do it. I, I remember I walked into a board meeting years ago. We were just waiting for one more person to show up, uh, unfortunately, and, and somehow the conversation devolved into politics. And by the time the last person had arrived, we were in like a heated debate that set, set a pretty negative tone for the rest of the board meeting. And, you know, that was sort of a reminder to me to uh, be more thoughtful about when I'm mixing the two. But I've, I've, definitely, <laughs> I've definitely found that people again, in this moment are much more receptive to it. And in a way they, you know, when they see others doing it, as I see you doing it, that they're appreciative of that because it helps them find their voice
1: as well. Two things on that. You know, in, in 2013, I published a column on the Accelerator's page of the Wall Street Journal complaining that the venture community was 87% Caucasian, and 89% male, and that 52% of VCs had gone to the same 10 schools. I published a companion case study that dealt with some of that at Columbia Business School where I've been teaching venture capital for years and got very few comments, if any, on that article in 2013. In 2014, I did a gender bias pledge in tech. So it was you know pretty early in the cycle for, for that sort of thing. And I got a lot of comments because diversity, equity, and inclusion in tech has meant women, especially white white women, straight white women, able-bodied straight white women for years. And I just think that if you want to shed light on an issue and talk about an issue, you know, it's okay to take a position as long as you're willing to deal with the consequences of that position. And I asked people to hold me accountable on the diversity stuff that I was articulating. And I feel like that's actually been helpful. I wanted them to hold me accountable because I wanted to do it and I kind of wanted help and to make a public commitment so that when when I failed, which, you know, from time to time, I definitely could use more help, I knew that I had uh, some accountability. So I do think it's important to take those positions if you feel strongly. And then people also tend to educate you on things and and more things sort of come your way on those topics so you can get smarter which i also think is helpful
0: yeah and when we talk about a diversity that that's definitely a topic that many firms are now vocally in support of which is terrific and there is some progress being made but those numbers that you quoted are we meaningfully in a different place in terms of whether it's venture or or tech in terms of diversity
1: so Richard Kirby wrote a great piece in 2018 called, Where Did You Go to School? And he used a data set, which he then opened up to the public of about just under 1,500 venture capital investors. And if you look at his data, it shows largely the same stuff that I wrote about in 2013 using 2011 data in venture. And one interesting indicator because I I ran through his data set with the top 10 HBCUs every year. There's a list of the top 10. And there were five VCs who had gone to Morehouse. Do you know how many times Howard appeared on that list of almost 1500 VCs? No, I I don't hazard a guess. Howard appeared 11 times. And at first blush, that sounds great until I tell you that it only appeared as a first or last name. Oh wow, no one from Howard was on that list. So no, the stats have not really changed and they certainly haven't changed at the highest levels in venture. And so you do have great funds like Equal Ventures, which is where Richard is a GP. It's the fund that he and Rick Zulo started and Betsy and I are proud LPs in that fund and also proud that Rick is our, my former student at at Columbia Business School. Funds like Six Four Five Ventures, which just announced the closing of its third fund. And what Namdi and Aaron have built is incredible and and it's a it's a big fund now. And Betsy and I are also proud to have been investors in fund one, fund two, and fund three. And we have I have former students who work there, and those folks are doing amazing things. So there are firms that have popped up, which is different than seeing true diversity as a widespread thing through the major funds that were existing in 2011 when that survey was done.
0: What are some of the things, Ed, that you think we can all do to help move things forward with diversity? Again, not just on gender diversity, but in in all the the other areas. What are some practical things that founders can do
1: and, and, and boards of companies can do to help with that? The first thing is say something in the smallest, starting in the smallest rooms, right? So if you're in a boardroom and there are six people around the table and they're all men or they're all white men or they all went to the same school, say something and say, you know, this is the way the board looks today. We can talk about how we got here, but let's talk about how it's going to look in three months, how it's going to look in six months. Let's talk about the concrete steps that we're going to take in order to get us there and when someone else does say something, amplify it and plus one it and it follow up and take action. When someone is thinking up an invite list for a dinner, say, you know, is that going to include the diversity and inclusion that we're striving to achieve? Um, are we doing that with the candidates that we're interviewing for jobs? Are we inviting people to things that, you know, will, will reflect on what's going to make everyone, you know, relatively comfortable. And are we, are we being inclusive in our approach? Make sure that people who aren't speaking up at a meeting, because there's only one of them, which often ends up being tokenism, especially I'm tired of seeing panels where there's, you know, you've got six people speaking, or twelve people speaking at an event, and there's clear tokenism um, that needs to be fixed by having numbers in, you know, reasonably good force. So th- those are some things that I think you you can do. I think you need to approach things with intentionality and intentionally diversify your network.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and that's great advice. You know, it's something I I think about a lot. It's as you know, it can be quite challenging whether in venture or finance or tech, to get the right the right balance, whether it's in a panel or on a board or on your cap table, for that matter, that's even harder. But as you're saying, it has to be very intentional. It's not something that's going to happen on its own. And certainly the momentum is actually in the opposite direction.
1: So I understand that for many people, it is challenging. But if you spend time building a network and if you look for specific things and if you your recruiting for instance is an aggregation of everything you've said and done on social media it's you know the people that you've had dinner with over the years it's it's your network right it, it, and i'm not saying that because you are recruiting through your network but mm. we all know that there is this informal system of vouching and validating that goes on and so yep. you you know There are so many people out there right now who are running or raising venture funds, for instance, who are people who reflect the diversity that we're striving to achieve in venture. If you're working on diversifying your cap table and you can't name eight, 10 majority black owned venture funds, work on it because there are dozens out there that have raised capital and are deploying capital and you should be focused on how you get to them before you enter a fundraise. And it's the same with board members and figure out what you're looking for and what else can be brought to the table. And in terms of women, I mean, there there are so many women-led venture funds and women partners at venture funds and women, you know, associates and principals. So it shouldn't be challenging. You just have to start doing it with intentionality early on. And I know this is something that you care about, but saying that it's challenging, I think gives people license to not do it. Saying that it takes some effort means that you're lazy if you don't do it, which is different.
0: Right. I appreciate the nuance for sure. I think the message from you is it's you got to put in the effort and it will help you build a better company
1: and also do some good in the world. And it really is additive. I mean, the perspective shift is definitely additive, especially if it's not tokenism in the boardroom or the meeting or the cap table or the employee base. And it is so much harder to diversify when you have a seven or eight member board, so much harder to to diversify when you have a non-diverse company of 50 people than it is when you have three or four members of your board or when you have 20 or 10 people in your company. Right. To start early. Very early. Yeah. Before we
0: close out here, I wanted to talk about a couple other things that are near and dear to you, and that's wine and music. In addition to mixing politics with work, you, you, you mix wine and music with work as well. And I was just curious nowadays when it's harder to travel. I know you do regular wine trips. What are you doing now to kind of you know, manage through it? And what's the, a trip that you're looking forward to when this is all over?
1: This is where you're supposed to say I'm looking forward to spending time with family. I have been quarantined with my college sophomore and college senior since March. I love spending time and, and and of course with my wife. We love spending time with our kids, but they're not supposed to be home with us 24/7. <laughs> so, I'm very much looking forward to seeing, you know, one of the great benefits of the job and industry I'm I'm in as well as some of the outside hobbies has been the development of friendships that are geographically distributed. And so getting together for a wine trip like that, or going to one of the great wine regions with, with those kind, you know with those friends, and even the business trips that take me to places where I have lots of friendships, just getting back to those kinds of things, frankly, a return to what used to be. Would 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 be nice, right? The the normalcy yeah. of, of it would be a welcome a welcome thing. So it's not it's not like I'm saying I can't wait to see Venice. I mean, I'd love to go to Venice, but right. but th- these are also such you know extraordinary first world problems. And the thing with wine, you know, getting to turn people on to stuff and getting to talk about those things and getting to share bottles and experiences and memories and bringing people together. That's the stuff that I can't wait to get back to to doing. And that can happen a few blocks from my home. It can happen a couple of thousand miles from my home. It doesn't matter. But that's the stuff I can't wait to get back to doing.
0: Yeah, that's great. You've introduced me to some artists that had not been on my radar before. One of them, uh, I'm I'm still kind of amazed by the circumstances of this, was uh, ex-ambassadors, um, that, that I remember they performed uh, a few feet in front of me in Tribeca Grill, if memory serves. And that was maybe less than a year before they became really, really huge. And I was kind of amazed by how that all went down. Are there artists on your radar right now that are up and coming or, or a couple that you, you feel people should know about that might not be on their radars?
1: So one of the other ways that we've evolved Venture Crush and one of the things I love about Venture Crush is that we have had fantastic music at these events and we've had amazing artists perform. And so friends of mine were mentoring a guy named John Tavius Willis. John Tavius played at our Venture Crush more than a year ago, uh, maybe two years ago at this point. And he came to dinner afterwards. He's a traditional blues artist. Uh, and after and he said after dinner, you know, I, I would love some ideas cause I've got to write a paper for my, you know, for college, right. <laughs> when this is over. <laughs> and, uh, and he graduated from college. He also won a Grammy the next year and being able to find that kind of talent and have them be part of Venture Crush. You know, Sarah Giroux performed at Venture Crush and won two Grammys the next year. And Madison Cunningham also won a Grammy the year after performing. So we've been really fortunate and it's because we have great friends who suggest stuff or turn us on to stuff. And I can't wait to get back to seeing live music where you can spot more people like that. But if you're not already listening to John Tavius and Madison or Sarah Jerose's new album, which uh, John Leventhal, Roseanne Cash's husband and a legendary producer and writer, did, like those folks are are extraordinarily talented. Betty Levette is, is another because it's not just new, it's also, you know, she's had a 50 year career and does not always get the recognition to which she's entitled uh, tift merit is 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 someone else that i think is worth listening to there's sort of an endless stream of folks lydia lovelace is another
0: well it sounds like we're going to need to provide a spotify playlist link <laughs> along with that uh, with this podcast that's i have a lot of listening to do <laughs> ed i really appreciate you taking the time to talk today it's been a fascinating conversation
1: Thank you so much for letting me come on and chat with you and, and for the kind words you've peppered throughout, which I really appreciate and I value the relationship so much. I hope that we get a chance to see each other and share a bottle and get to talk politics and music. I'm really looking forward to that. I'll see you Adventure Crush. Thanks.
0: I'd like to thank Ed for joining us and you for listening. John Syracusa is our show's producer. You can also hear John interview fintech founders and the VCs who fund them on the Bank On It podcast. Join us next time as we speak with innovators and thought leaders in finance and technology on the OpenFin MVP podcast.